welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the favorite jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a writer, publicist, broadcaster, and double bassist from England, Al Shipton. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today we have, I want to say, one of the leading editor authors in the world with jazz, also a conservatory teacher, Mr. Shipton. Thank you for joining us, sir. Great to be here. Lovely to talk to you, Leander. And this is your 15th book, if I'm correct. I mean, 12th book, if I'm correct, right? That you wrote well, as an author. It's, it's a bit difficult to add them all up because I did a series of six children's books, and I don't know whether to count those as one or six, <laughs> but... Uh, Oh, they came out many years ago, introducing all the instruments of the orchestra to kids. And and it was great. Got lots of feedback from that. But that's kind of to one side from the jazz world. Understood, understood. But this is pretty much your personal journey in the jazz world, which, like I said, you lived the dream, I think. Well, I guess. But I mean, the thing is that I've done lots of biographies and I did a big history of jazz, but I've never put myself in them. It's It's a quite daring thing to sort of go from writing about other people actually to put yourself somewhere in the story. And that's, I found that quite difficult to do, actually, because I'm, I'm quite happy writing about Cab Calloway or Dizzy Gillespie or some of the other people I've written about. And suddenly, chapter one, it's me. And that was quite a challenge. So at least without giving the, the whole interview, without giving too much away, tell the people at least how you got into the jazz world it, because I thought that was great. And then you ended up playing, and then you ended up journeying. So just what you're willing to share. <laughs> well, let's do the very beginning, because I think that's even up on Amazon, so there's no secret to anybody. But okay, <laughs> um, So my dad came back from World War II. He was uh, with the Royal Air Force, but he was in the Pacific, actually supporting American forces in, in World War II. And funnily enough, he never talked about it. And I only really found out about it when I went to the museum in New Orleans, the World War II Museum, which is a an amazing place and it has a kind of huge room where you can follow the whole Pacific campaign through. Anyway, he ended up in Hong Kong and he, Radio Hong Kong was chucking out a lot of records because uh, I think their library was full or whatever. So he sent his aircraftman's trunk back from Hong Kong packed with 78s and it turned up about six months later in Britain and actually only two of them were broken which is pretty amazing. And so my, my childhood memories are of his record collection, which was Fats Waller, Earl Hines, Duke Ellington. And this was the music that they put on to keep me quiet so my mum could do the housework. So I was listening to Fats and Earl Hines from before I could walk. So it was a great education. And then when I was at uh, elementary school, I was walking to school one day and outside there was a kind of second-hand shop selling old furniture and other things. So there was a box of 78s. And I just thought, oh, I'll have a look at these. And they're all these amazing records. I remember Leroy Carr and Scrapper Blackwell. I had no idea who they were, but I bought it because of the name. Uh, there's some Artie Shaw, um, who I'd never heard of. And then the one that absolutely blew me away was Muggsy Spanier and his ragtime band. Because I didn't know then that their version of Dip and Ask Blues was copying Joe Oliver. I just plunged into that record and I loved it. And so gradually I started listening to more and discovering more. And when I was about 12, I'd been having classical cello lessons for a little while. And I said to my dad, 
I want to play the bass. And he said, you're too small. You can't play the bass yet. Anyway, I nagged and nagged and nagged. And we lived very near the army base in Aldershot in the south of England. And we went to the music shop there. And there was a very stuffy old guy who'd been a sergeant major in the army who ran the shop. And he said, well, we've got a thing called a gig bass. It's not a proper bass. It's one of the things our lads use in the dance band. I got my first bass, just over half size, perfect for a young guy to play. And that was it. I was away and I started playing as much as I could. So I guess that's how I got into it, Leanne. I mean, and then the people you got to play with, which is another amazing thing altogether. <laughs> but let's go into the whole, the beginning of the book, because he said we don't want to give too much away, and that might be on the internet. The whole New Orleans experience. Well, I kind of got into New Orleans jazz because I heard a band when I was about 16. I went to hear Ken Collier's Jasmine. And in Britain at that time, Ken was the sort of meeting point for everybody who wanted to discover New Orleans jazz. If you wanted to know about Bunk Johnson or George Lewis or any of those old school players, Ken was the British guy who kind of learned that music. And just as a byway, when I was 17, I was cheeky enough to ask him to come and do a session with my school band. And amazingly, he said yes, and he came and did it. And later on, I joined his professional band in the UK, but that's another story. Um, but through Ken, I got this great interest in the music. And when my grandfather died, he left me some money and he said, this is for you to go to New Orleans. He said, because you need to discover this music at first hand. Now, his story was, I talked about my dad in World War II, my grandfather in World War I had been in the Atlantic convoys. So he'd actually been to the States between 1914 and 1918 several times. I have books he picked up in Boston and New York and everywhere. So he was very keen for me to share the experience he'd had as a young man and get to the States. So 1976, I arrive at the festival that I think you've just been to, Leander, the, the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. And my goodness, that was just like, it was a banquet. Yeah. I mean, I think I describe in the book one minute, I'm not only listening to Charles Mingus, but he gave me his bass to hold while he went to find the men's room. He, we were sitting in the front row and he just kind of beckoned me and my trumpet playing friend Teddy up. And he said, can you just look after this while I go for a leak? And he went to the men's room, came back. And then we chatted to him until the second set came up. Now, all those stories about Mingus being difficult. He was the loveliest, funniest, most charming guy. But the thing was, when he knew we were musicians, everything changed. He was really, he said, great, you're here from Britain. It's wonderful you're here listening to this music. And it was just a magical experience. That was one end of it. And the other end was meeting all the guys who were survivors of the first generation of jazz in New Orleans who were still playing at that time. And that was a fabulous experience. So, so were they playing mainly in the French quarters at that time? Or where did you hear them? Well, Preservation Hall was um, about 15 years old. That was running in the French Quarter. Mm -hmm. And I went to hear all the bands that were playing there. There was William Percy Humphrey's band. There was the Kid Thomas band, which was the very first band I actually heard playing live there. Um, there was Sweet Emma Barrett, um, who at that stage um, had lost the use of her legs. She was carried in in a wheelchair, and she could only play with one hand. But when she played and sang, there was a kind of magic. You were being transported back to an authentic blues voice from the 20s who was playing the piano as well. That was a very emotional experience hearing her. Um, 
there were several other women playing at that stage. And I think, you know, people have characterized New Orleans jazz as a very male scenario. It wasn't. There was the wonderful Jeanette Kimball, who was a great pianist. She went back, she recorded in Papa, with Papa Celestine in the 20s. And I was privileged to hear her and later actually to play on some gigs with her in the UK. Um, it's just an amazing, as I say, a banquet of sound. And some of the musicians, the minute they discovered that I wanted to know about the bass and I wanted to know more about the instrument, they couldn't do enough for me. And what was lovely was later players like Melvin Yancey, who nobody remembers, and Frank Fields, who'd played with Fats Domino, came to the UK. And because I'd met them there, they call me up and say, we need a bass for a week in Britain. Will you lend us your bass? And I did. So, and Frank was an amazing mentor to me. He really helped me learn more about the instrument. He kept saying, you don't, don't necessarily want to play like these old guys, all that slap bass. He said, you've got a lovely bass. It's got a great tone. You want to make it sing out. And it took me a while to realize what he was on about. But finally, I followed that advice. And nowadays, I don't really play slap bass anymore. I just try and make the instrument sound as beautiful as it can. Well, just a question on that. So at least your traditional cello upbringing, wouldn't that have brought that out naturally, you think? I don't know, really. It's a very different instrument because uh, the cello is tuned in, in fifths yes. and the bass is tuned in fourths, so you have to relearn fingering. The bowing's the same if you're playing classical music. Um, but I was in New York at one point, and this story is not in the book, so here's a, an added bonus. I was sitting in Bradley's in New York, and it was a duo, and Red Mitchell was playing bass. I think Cedar Walton was the pianist that night. I mean, it changed from night to night. I was there quite a bit, but I saw, looked at Red and I thought, he's playing a note you can't get on the four string bass. He's playing a low C. Then I watched and I realized he'd tuned his bass like a cello. So as Red came to the bar during the interval, I said, excuse me, Mr. Mitchell, but am I right in thinking your bass is tuned in fifths? And he looked me up and down. He said, are you a bass player? And I said, yes. He said, I'll, get a drink. I'll come sit with you. So he came and sat and talked to me for a good 20 minutes about the problems of retuning the bass like a cello. But it was fantastic. And, and this is an experience I've had over and over again. If you show a bit of interest, people open the door. They'll talk to you. They, they love the idea of sharing that expertise. And just building off that, because I'm curious, why do you think more bass players don't do that? I think it is difficult. You need a smaller instrument. Red played a three-quarter size bass with quite a narrow fingerboard. This is getting a bit technical. But if you try and do that on a larger instrument, first of all, they're designed to be played in fourths. So not every bass is as resonant in fifths. What a lot of bassists do, Ron Carter does it, for example, is to have uh, an extension for the lower string. So if you look at Ron's bass, there's a thing that looks like a ruler sticking down the E string at the top. And that allows him to play those lower notes. And there's a sort of little series of levers that he can operate to get those, those lower pitches. And uh, I mean, that's a very simple way of doing it. You don't have to relearn fingering. You've just got to remember that there's that funny bit on the bottom of the string, um, which which goes down to C. Okay, man. And uh, don't worry, there are a lot of people who listen to this that are very technical at play, so they're not going to be confused by that. But yeah, I wasn't thinking of using the extension on the fifth. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then, of course, there are people who play the five-string bass as well. I don't think that's so common in the United States. I've met fewer five-string players there than I have in Europe. 
I mean, the great British bebop bassist Spike Heatley has sadly passed just at the end of last year, but Spike always played a five-string bass. And of course, the other great thing about that was no sitters in, because, uh, I mean, he said that cut both ways, because he was always, always there for a jam session. There was no chance to go off and let somebody else play for a bit. The other person I discovered used to play a five-string bass was Junior Raglin with the Ellington Band, because when Jimmy Woody was called in to sub for him, Jimmy told me it was an absolute mind-bending exercise for him to play Junior's five-string bass, which was tuned quite differently from his. Okay, another thing I definitely did not know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I don't think, uh, we're going to go back to the book, just one thing. So, the music scene, at least how it changed, at least because you've been there recently I, from the book, the New Orleans, from back then to present day. Well... There's a lot of changes. I think the biggest change was Katrina. Um, I was there at the festival in 2002, and that was the last, well, the last time I was there before Katrina, so that happened three years later. But the city was very much as it had been in the 70s, though there was more music going on. And some of the areas that had been not so musical, I mean, around Snug Harbour and Frenchman Street, that area had got much more populated with bars and places to listen to the music. That's still true because that area wasn't decimated by Katrina. But what really, I couldn't believe it when I was back there in 2016 to see how much of the city hadn't been rebuilt. Yes, there are some wonderful uh, areas where some of the 6th and 7th Ward were, were pulled back together and there's some great new architecture there. There's some great new architecture along by the levee where houses have been raised up and even if there was another flood, it wouldn't be so catastrophic. But what really saddened me was to see, going out to Lake Pontchartrain, just areas where no rebuilding has yet been able to take place and that displaced population hasn't come back because those were communities I loved to be in. Um, I was very fortunate that some of the musicians I knew took me out to hear music going on in other parts of the city. And those are only, I say slowly, I think there's been an acceleration in the last few years, but certainly six years ago, there was a lot of work still to be done. So that background means that things are very different from the way they were. And a lot of the music out in the wards that I used to be able to go and hear is not so available or even present as it was. But on the other hand, there's a lot more music in the city centre and out in the Treme area. So one can get to hear a lot of things. And the other great thing that's happened is the evolution of the brass bands. So now, whereas back in the 70s, the Dirty Dozen was seen as this extraordinary revolution in brass band playing, now they're almost seen as old-fashioned compared to the Rebirth and some of the other bands that are out there today. And the whole kind of revolution of players like Trombone Shorty has really changed the musical scene. I, I love it. He's I like, class. I like class, energy. Yeah. <laughs> I can't take anything away from him. And one thing I must say is that he found a way to get that gimmick and make it a mainstream thing because he closes and opens in a lot of different cities worldwide and he's always on the road. Absolutely. And, and he's, I mean, he's a bit like the uh, messengers for the music like Dr. John used to be or Cousin Joe or others. He's bringing New Orleans music to a huge public and 
he's proud of it. I mean, that, that's the other great thing. I mean, everything from the, the tune titles to the way that people are involved in the concerts, you get drawn in. And I remember that from right back to the old Preservation Hall guys. It's the way you get drawn into the music as a listener. That magic hasn't changed. The style of music has, the other influences that have come in have, um, but at heart, it's about drawing people in. And he's brilliant at doing that. Yeah. And there are other players who don't get around quite as much, like Kermit Ruffins, you know, other fabulous players. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's great that that scene is still operating and still producing new sounds and new, new musicians. So you say he's currently the biggest influence from the South of America right now, right? Well, he's one of them. Who else I, would you I, I, I try never to make complete okay, that he's fine. the biggest pronouncements because somebody's always going to come up, knock me on the shoulder and say, hang on, you forgot such and such. Uh, I'm used to those emails, people correcting my errors. <laughs> so, yes, okay. So, another thing I wish to ask you about is Sonny Rollins, okay? Yes. Fan of his. That whole situation <laughs> was great. <laughs> well, I, I was very lucky with Sonny. I'm going to just wind back a little bit. One of the things that used to happen a lot, it doesn't so much now it certainly covid has made all that change but going back 20 years when i was writing for the times newspaper they would sometimes say oh um here's a transatlantic air ticket we'd like you to go and interview such and such and i remember going to the piano festival in the regatta bar in boston and in three days interviewing a number of pianists um dave mckenna dave brubeck and ahmed jamal and that all the interviews were great, but I saw Ahmed Jamal at 11 in the morning and we had a fantastic interview. And at the end of it, I said, well, goodbye. And we shook hands and I went downstairs. And the hotel he was in had two stairs that went down in different directions and they both ended up in the lobby. So as I came into the lobby, he was coming down the other side and he said, what are you doing for lunch? And I said, nothing. And he said, let's have lunch together. And we just, had a day of chatting, not being recorded, just talking. And I've done lots of interviews with him since. And he still recalls that day in Boston when we got together. Now, this long preamble is because that's kind of exactly what happened with Sonny. He'd moved from after Katrina, uh, sorry, after the Twin Towers episode, um, he'd moved from his apartment downtown and was living upstate. But he'd come in and was staying in a hotel prior to his reunion with Roy Haynes at Carnegie Hall. And the Times said, well, you've got to go and talk to him about this, talk about this great concert and talk to him about his career. So, yes, I, I went to do that and we had a lovely interview. And he, Sonny's famous for saying he never listens to his recordings, but actually he doesn't need to because he can remember them all. I mean, and I really remember. He can talk about details chord changes in particular choruses of particular songs, and not just his music, but other music. Um, we were talking about um, Coleman Hawkins and Oscar Pettiford on The Man I Love, and he said, do you love that bit in the bass chorus? And I said, where he breathes. And he goes, yes, you can hear him going, ah, ah, during the bass. And it's that kind of recall. And we shared it. It was just wonderful to be able to talk to somebody who could bring alive the records that he loved and his own music. And obviously I hadn't listened to more than 
the little bit of the iceberg that sticks out of Sonny's music. There's masses and masses of it to listen to. He's recorded so much. But we had a, a really interesting conversation. And again, we finished the formal interview. And Sonny said, well, I've got a bit of time before um, the concert tonight. Let's just talk. And we just had a wonderful chat. And he turned out to be interested in, in Fat Swallow. I'd written a book about Fat, so I sent him a copy. And we've never really stayed in touch formally, but whenever he's come to London, I've been at the concerts and I was there when he and Henry Grimes were reunited at the Barbican in, in London. Henry was in the audience, I was in the audience, and we went backstage. I mean, it, it's that kind of thing. Um, we just stayed in touch. And so I sent him the book or a big chunk of the book to look at, and he was extremely nice about it. I also wanted him to check the chapter about him to make sure it was correct, which he did. Well, he and did. so there's a lot of our formal conversation, the one that was recorded mm -hmm. in that chapter, much, much more than ever got into the newspaper at the time, and much more than a conversation that we had for the BBC as well. So it's, it's a kind of compilation of my chats with Sonny. Yes. And there's even a picture of us um, having yes, a chat. I, 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 kind of jelly of you there but yeah <laughs> so do you think that's one of the things missing in the jazz world now though i mean tristan mcbride tries he's always out there he always gives master classes and i remember listening to one of his interviews where he's talking about there are no that many great heads out there that are out there mentoring the kids or talking to them like he had access to and then he also told about the horrors of his masterclass where he corrects somebody and then people feel like he's embarrassing them. That's so difficult. Um, I mean, I, I think he has a, he's in a great tradition of bass masterclasses. I remember Ray Brown doing some here in the UK, which BBC television filmed back in the 60s. I watched them when I was at school. And Ray was completely unfazed by that. If he thought somebody was not up to scratch, he told them. I remember there was some poor girl who came out. She was really very good. She played with the trio. And he said, OK, turn your amplifier off and do the same thing. Well, her sound literally disappeared. And he said, first lesson for a bassist, you are playing a double bass, not an amplifier. I want to hear you making a sound on the bass. He said, anyway, you played that very nicely. You did uh, Indiana in F. Now do it in A flat. Yeah. And the poor girl didn't know where to put us off because she just knew the tune in one key. And that whole thing of going through all the keys and at the same time not having the comfort blanket of the amplifier. And, I mean, I think now people might think twice about that. But Ray was making a point to a whole class of students. I once talked to him about it and he said, well, what am I going to do? She's a better musician for that experience. And I don't think I cut her down. I think I was encouraging her to think differently about how to play the instrument. Now, who knows if that actually took root with her or not. But it was very interesting to see that happen. And I've seen Christian at work. Um, he did a brilliant concert here at the Cheltenham Jazz Festival, which we, uh, I was a producer for BBC Radio for a while, and I produced that concert. It was just amazing to have his big band here. But before he came on, he found one of the other bassists who was on the festival. He said, you come up, do the first number with the band, and then I'll come on. Now that's stagecraft, but actually what a thrill for this young player to come up and do a number with the band before the formal concert begins. And I thought that was 
sensitive, well done, and a huge encouragement for a student musician to be asked up to do that with that incredible big band that, that Christian brought to, to the UK. And he's a very giving person in interviews, in masterclasses, and indeed to audiences. And whether it's with the trio, whether it's with the, the reformed Joshua Redman Mood Swings band, which he's just been on the road with, I mean, he's really out there. He does something that I think not enough people do, which is he'll even go and make contact with the audience during the interval or after the show. He's not going to disappear into a dressing room somewhere, get on a bus and vanish. And that is, that's the old way of doing it. Um, I was just talking about Ray, actually, to one of my colleagues at the BBC the other day. And they said, well, when was the last time you saw Ray? And I said, oh, it was when he and Monty Alexander and Russell Malone were doing a trio concert at London's Barbican, which is like a three-dimensional puzzle to find your way around. And I walked in through the front door and Ray saw me and he said, oh, somebody I know, where can I get something to eat in this place? So I guided him up the three floors and eight staircases to the place where the restaurant was. And, uh, and the three of them sort of disappeared in. And later on, I caught up with him and he said, um, you saved our lives out there. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's that sort of memory, seeing people who are clearly needing to go and have something to eat, which everybody forgets with touring musicians. You know, you say, oh, it's Ray Brown, let's have a talk about, oh, when you're with Oscar, and he, the last thing he wants to do is talk about Oscar Peterson. He wants to get a sandwich. It's, but the lovely thing is, that raised generation were musicians who went out there and talked to their public. I can think of lots of other people who do that. I mean, Marie Schneider is very good at that. Dave Douglas, particularly because of Greenleaf, he's out there, he will talk to his audiences. Um, he's frequently in cities where they're playing. You'll meet him around listening to other gigs. Um, you know, there are many people who are prepared to be out there in the way that, that Christian is. And uh, I think it's wonderful that, that it is still possible even if the very old heads like Lou Donaldson aren't touring or out there doing that anymore, though, thank God he's still with us. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is wonderful when musicians can do that. And I think there's a sense, I got this very strongly from the older generation of musicians, that um, they owed the audience. It, it, the, the concert didn't stop when they came off stage. The concert stopped when they'd shaken a few hands and met people after the gig and perhaps signed some records or LPs or whatever it was. And I think that in the era of streaming, the connection with the physical object may be less common than it used to be. But I love the idea that people would hang around and then sign some albums and whatever. I, I think that whatever form of music you're in, it's a genuine personal connection with the artist. I mean, I still treasure a copy of Speak No Evil that Wayne and Herbie signed for me. Um, just because it's a direct personal connection with that music. I don't fully blame that on, as somebody else told me who came out before, he blames a lot of that on MTV. Because then a lot of them really got their heads blown up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess that's true too. But, um, but I think that MTV is not, without being too unfair, I don't think it's quite such a phenomenon this side of the Atlantic as it is on your side of the Atlantic. And there are a lot of European 
less well-known labels that are still producing physical product for artists. I mean, obviously, the, the, the huge one is ECM, and that's still... I mean, whether it's VJI, um, there's, a, there's a whole number of people who are signed to that and making very creative music. And the physical copy is still very much part of Manfred Eicher's philosophy for that label. Okay. So I was wrong there also. <laughs> no, I don't think you're wrong. I think it's just a different perspective from this side of the Atlantic. Um, I remember when ECM, I was at the Chicago Jazz Festival in 2000 mm -hmm. in Grant Park. And part of it was sponsored by ECM. And what I remember is of the thousands of people who were there in the audience, very few of them really knew what the label was or what it was all about. And being in the tent there, watching people coming in and out going, oh, wow, oh, there's this, oh, there's this, there's, there's all this Keith Jarrett stuff. And it was really interesting to see how that worked. Um, and uh, it was, um, oh, the Note Factory. Um, Ensemble Chicago, tenor saxophonist, um, his band was playing on that festival. Mm -hmm. And ECM was absolutely right behind getting that music out there. Um, the other person who was on that same festival, one of the greatest sets I've ever been to in my life, Charles Lloyd playing for 5,000 people as the sun went down over Chicago. One of Billy Higgins' last gigs with the band, Larry Grenadier and um, uh, John Abercrombie. That quartet playing to that huge audience was just an extraordinary event. Um, it was the time that the Water is Wide album had come out and um, they played some of the numbers from that. And you could just feel, people started lighting lighters like a pop festival and putting them up in the air in little flames. Uh, and, and Charles loved it, you could see. He absolutely loved playing to that audience. Oh. We're skating around a bit on the No, it's cool, man. I'm enjoying it. It's just, like I said, you got to experience a whole entirely different level than I, definitely me, but even people your age ever got the chance to. Uh, since we're just bouncing around. Okay, Duke Ellington, one of my old teachers, had letters from Duke Ellington. He played a gig with him right after the Second World War. And every year, like he said, pretty much, he's like, oh, give me your address. I'm going to send you a Christmas card every year. He didn't believe it, but he literally sent him a Christmas card every single year until he passed. So that whole area of the book where you were talking about that and you had the letter, <laughs> that made me go like, oh, shoot. <laughs> yeah, well, that was Jimmy Woody, the bass player in the 56 to 60 band. And uh, Jimmy used to send me a Christmas card every year after we met. Yeah. And uh, I've reproduced one of them in the book. But um, we, we stayed in touch. And he was um, he was very, very generous with me. But one story that's not in the book, which I might mention, is that um, with my band, the so-called Buck Clayton Legacy Band, we play mm -hmm. a little more than Buck's music. But the idea that everything we do has a nod in the direction of Buck Clayton. And many of the charts that we would play were written by Buck. But on one occasion, we were in Switzerland and we were playing two movements of Duke's Newport Suite, which was written for the 1956 festival. And obviously, flying in to do three gigs in Switzerland, I don't bring my own bass, so the, the each gig had hired a different bass for me. And the first two were great. And then we got to the final one, where we were doing the Newport Suite, and the bass was unplayable. I mean, it had an action so low that you, you, you'd have to be 
um, just tickling it to get a sound, and you needed to rely on the amp. It was the exact opposite of that Ray Brown story I was talking about before. And I just said to the organizer, I can't play this bass. And they said, well, that's tough, because that's the one we've got for you. Anyway, the sound engineer said, look, we're set up. Just come with me. And I got in his van, and we dr- I thought he could have been taking me anywhere. Might have disappeared off the face of the earth. Anyway, we went into the back streets of Zurich, and we knocked on a door. And apparently he had phoned ahead, but he hadn't told me that. And the door opened, and this guy said, oh, come in. And there was this bass, and I thought, I know this bass from somewhere. And he said, well, you can borrow this for tonight, if you like. And I played it. It was Jimmy Woody's bass. And when Jimmy had lived in Switzerland, this was the bass he used. And when he moved back to the States, he'd given it to this guy for safekeeping. When Jimmy passed, it was still there. So I actually played the Newport Suite on Jimmy Woody's own bass. That was you know quite I mean? a touching Everyone, moment. This guy lived the life. <laughs> okay, so what moment in your life made you go wow the most? I'm just going to ask it like that. You kind of had one of those like... I th- Well, there's several. If, can we do a top 10? I'm with you all the way. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, so this is in no particular order, so I might okay. rank order it later. The first time... I heard Sonny in the Barbican Hall playing Don't Stop the Carnival. It went on for 12 minutes. He came down to the front of the stage and it was that absolutely inimical Sonny Rollins magic. It was just, I mean, it's a heart-stopping moment. It was absolutely wonderful. Another one, now this is an odd one. I was in New York and I went to a bar called Lush Life short-lived jazz club that was running around 1985, 86. And I went to hear a pianist who I thought would be playing the drums. It was Jack DeJanette's trio, but Jack was playing piano. And he had Eddie Gomez on bass and Charlie Persip on drums. And that trio was pretty spectacular anyway. And then there was a huge kerfuffle at the door and the table next to mine that had been reserved all evening, somebody came to sit at it, and it was Art Blakey. And the band raised their game. It was just one of those moments, and you could hear Jack and Charlie going, it's Art, he's here. And it was, you know how sometimes you're watching a band or listening to a band, and you can feel the adrenaline level rise? That's what happened. And that was that was one of those wow moments because it was just so special Uh, i think most of my other experiences were in the states a great one do you remember the old basin street east club monday nights used to be a duo of jim hall and ron carter and i used to go and hear them quite often because i was off work on a monday i worked in new york on and off for five years so i was i was there quite a bit and um one night again kerfuffle at the door and this person came to sit in was Clark Cherry. So we had this wonderful trio of Clark and um, Ron Carter and Jim Hall, which was just another of those amazing things. He wasn't billed, he just turned up and started playing, and it was magical. Um, So there's three of my top ten. First moment in Preservation Hall, hearing the Kid Thomas Band playing for real for the first time time that was extraordinary wasn't their best lineup but it was just a lineup that made 
absolute sense at the time. Yes. Now we're going to jump to Switzerland. Okay, Switzerland, let's go. <laughs> now, here's another weird thing. This is I know this sounds a bit like name dropping and it's not intended to be, but um I was chairman of the judges of the um saxophone competition which they used to run for a few years at Montreux in 2002. And uh it was a really interesting competition and there were lots of well, uh, first time I heard Walter Smith III playing, he was one of the contestants there, and I think he won the audience prize that year. Um, my British counterpart, Soweto Kinch, was actually the prize winner. Um, Lynn Ariel was the accompanying trio for all the finalists. So that was pretty spectacular in its own right. So I was there with that. And then after the contest, I went down to hear what was going on in the main concert hall. And this is not a jazz gig at all. But the first person I ran into was the guy who was running the late night jam sessions, somebody you may remember, called Joe Sample. Um, and uh, Joe, I uh, was introduced to him, and he said, hey, I've got a spare ticket. Um, but it's not really a ticket, it's just a backstage pass to um, to go and sit on the stage for tonight's concert. I said, oh, that's fine. He said, well, 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 come up with me. So he's sitting on the side, and I said, what is the concert, by the way? And he said, oh, it's David Bowie. So we were sitting on the side of the stage for a live David Bowie show playing to 3,000 people in Montreux um, with uh, one of my all-time heroes on piano sitting at the same table sharing a large bottle of champagne with me. But David's concert, it's on, you can see it on YouTube, the whole thing is available. It was one of the great Bowie concerts. And there we were, just out of camera shot, sitting in the wings for that concert. So that's number four. Same festival... Um, there was the wonderful European group called the Espion Svensson Trio. And 15 years ago, Espion very sadly drowned in Copenhagen Harbour, trying to save his son um, from a, a swimming accident. That trio was phenomenal in that they reinterpreted a lot of classic jazz, so they, they could reinterpret monk tunes and things, but they had their own repertoire as well. I heard them here in the UK at, without being too unfair, um, I was the youngest person in the audience, and at that stage I was 55, um, or thereabouts. Um, that sounds most like every of the audience jazz festival I go to, though. <laughs> so, so the grey heads were nodding, or the blue heads were nodding, to this audience, and they played a fabulous set. Three nights later, I was at Montreux, and they were playing for a mosh pit of 16 to 22-year-olds, and the band played a completely different approach to the same music, but it was wonderful to hear how the same trio adapted their game to the circumstances they were playing for and the age of the audience they were communicating with. So that those two add up to one experience, if that makes sense. And the other, the other one of these festival gigs, Montreux, I heard her in Montreux, but this is, Montreux gig wasn't as good as five days before in London, a different year. I heard Cassandra Wilson at the Barbican in London and it was one of her magical concerts. She'd got a Persian rug in the front of the stage and she did the concert barefoot on the rug. And I don't know if it was the sensation of the rug or whatever, but the whole concert was just absolutely magical. Um, and again, I can take it. I remember various other of my British musician friends were, were there for that concert. And we still talk about it as one of the great concerts. Now, did she move off the rug the whole show, or she just... Tiptoed around it at one point. Um, but she literally uh, but... was planted on the rug, 
and that was yeah okay maybe she put herself in the zone through the rug that's the only thing i could think of i think so i think it was not like having a big x on the stage to say this is your point for the mics and the lights and everything she just had the rug there but it was it was great and um Funnily enough, we went to interview her for the BBC not long after that concert. And my producer was a very keen cyclist. So he turned up um, at her very smart hotel wearing his uh, reflective yellow jacket and his stripes and a little blinking light on his helmet that he forgot to switch off. And we went into her room and she said, I see you've brought a Martian with you. Which was, but again, that broke the ice. It was a great conversation. and. Uh, and that program, unfortunately, you can't stream it in the States, but it is streamable in the UK, that um, interview I did with Cassandra. Um, but what a wonderful giving person she was in that interview. Um, so very high marks. Uh, the I've run out of numbers. No, I can't uh, remember uh, how many. Uh, but those, those are some of the heart-stopping moments. Okay. Oh, yeah. uh, one more. Go one on. more. Ella with the Basie Band at the Royal Festival Hall in London in 1975. That's in the book. And... It was a great, great concert. And in the book, I talked to several people who were on the stage that night, including Tommy Flanagan and Butch Miles. For me, though, the other great thing about that concert was that I bought my tickets very late, about 10 minutes after the booking opened. Mm -hmm. And I got some of the last seats for the concert, and I was actually sitting on the stage behind the band. I was 10 feet from Freddie Green. And I've always loved Freddie Green's playing. And just being able to sit there and watch Freddie playing a one-hour set with Basie and then Freddie being Freddie, quite a lot of Ella's set and then the set when the band came back at the end was just marvellous. Okay, so this is completely off the... completely different than the book and in general. So when I say artists like Sade, okay? Yep. Would you consider her jazz? That's a difficult one. I'd say some elements. Some elements. And that's not just a political answer. I think I think generally there are elements of jazz there. Okay. If I say Kendrick Lamar. Oh, very definitely. And I think there are big connections. I mean, um, I'm I'm aware of the circle of musicians that have worked with Kendrick, and I think it's a two-way process. Um I don't think that To Pimp a Butterfly is actually a jazz album, but I think that many jazz musicians are there in that environment. And he's had a huge impact on people like Kamasi and, and some of the other people in that circle in terms of what you can throw into the jazz melting pot and make really satisfactory music out of. Okay. I don't think it's a jazz album also. I just wanted your point of view on it. <laughs> well, I think we're, we're agreed on yeah, that. Yeah, we agree on that. There's people but, but who I tell me some... it's a jazz album. I'm like, mm, nah. no. <laughs> but I think it feeds in. Yes, I agree with that. And don't worry, it's not going to take you a whole day and everything. But okay, so the modern stuff where you hear a lot more rap, R&B presence thrown into the jazz world. Your yep. take on that? Well, my take on that goes back to two people I have a lot of respect for. One is the um, late trumpeter Abram Wilson, who grew up in the States, spent a lot of time playing in New Orleans, and then lived in London for a number of years. And Abram had a short-lived band with Soweto Kinch. Soweto believes absolutely firmly that there's no dividing line 
between an improvising MC and an improvising saxophonist. And to prove it, we made a series together, which I produced and Soweto co-wrote with me and presented, on the history of hip-hop and rap and how that lyric tradition can be traced right the way back to Slim Gaylord and Cab Calloway, through Gil Scott Heron, all sorts of other the lost the lost poets. There's there's a whole series of connections in African American culture that you can trace as a line right the way through. And Soweto sees the improvising role of the MC as directly comparable to his improvising role as a saxophonist. Audiences don't always get that, but he has a thing he does where he will say, give me a word. And I remember the last time I saw him do this, we were actually recording the gig for the BBC. He was at the Cheltenham Jazz Festival and he said, give me a word. And somebody shouted, Cheltenham. So he wrote it on a blackboard and then he improvised a couplet about every letter in the word, which he wrapped then over the, the music. Watching that, no doubt in my mind, it's improvised music. And it was in a jazz setting with a jazz rhythm section. People, I'll tell you who's guesting on that was Greg Hutchinson. Now, I've heard Greg playing in very formal settings with Ray Brown. I've also heard him in a very different uh, hip-hop kind of setting. He's one of those musicians who just sits very comfortably in those two extremes, but he doesn't see them as extremes. He sees them as a continuity. Does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense because, like I said, there's some albums that have been coming out, even Robert Glasper's latest album, Black Music number the Volume 3. People are saying, well, it's more R&B and rap. And I'm like, but he's actually a jazz artist. Like, I'm actually telling them he plays jazz, but he actually is able to do other stuff. Yes, and I think, I mean, what's always really impressed me about Robert, who I did a pre-concert interview with him a few years ago at a festival in the UK, and um, it was very interesting talking with him and exploring some of the lines of experiment that he was taking, because in that concert he did a couple of numbers as just trio, but the band was the experiment, and he had all the other things going on as well. And, you know, I talked about, Espion Svensson playing to a mosh pit. I mean, goodness me, Glasper got an audience on their feet um, with with that band. And, you know, jazz is about movement. I, 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 all those bands that my Heroes of the Swing era played for, and the New Orleans bands, when you're playing for dancers, the music goes to a different level. When people are moving to the music, I mean, I, I wish I'd heard the Basie band playing for a dance as well as for a concert because they had people jigging around in their seats. It wasn't possible to do that in the, in the Royal Festival Hall in London, but um, certainly I've heard some of the bands. I remember um, Buck Clayton's swing band that he ran after he'd given up playing, but used to conduct, playing for a dancing audience in Europe. And, you know, that is... The band just played for the audience. And seeing Robert Glasper's experiment doing exactly that, again with a young audience, bringing young music, young fans in to hear the music you can't do better than that and the nice thing was that the next set was Birelli Legren playing his gypsy music actually on that particular festival and the audience stayed for it and there was Borelli, um you know going right back to Django at some points uh, but playing 
a set that connected with these young people because they were there, they'd had a great time. And actually, you can dance to that Django stuff as easily as you can to other things. It was a really interesting cross-fertilization of some European jazz, all the things that go into Robert Glasper's music, and an audience of young people from what is a very deprived area in the northeast of England, really engaging with the music. I mean, I can make fun of northeast of England all day because, you know, once you go over Newcastle, I say it's a weird world. Love Manchester, but it's a different world up there. <laughs> yeah, well, well, this was in Gateshead, so I think you have the, the, the other side of the time. Yes. Okay, so another thing I just need to ask. So was your grandfather or your father more achieved with you taking a love towards his music? My grandfather never really saw it come to fruition because he died in 1975, so that wasn't something he could really see through. My father was amazingly long-suffering. He drove me to gigs before I could drive. Um, he used to come to a lot of our concerts. And then he died in 2006. And about 1998, I was playing Haydn's Theresa Mass in Dorchester Abbey, which is not very far from here. Um, I'm in Oxford in the UK, and Dorchester is its beautiful medieval church down on the Thames a bit further towards London. And I played one of the other Haydn masses, the Nelson Mass, before. I'd never played the Theresa Mass. And Dorchester Abbey, even though this was this time of year, it was May, it was a beautifully warm, sunny day outside, and it was like stepping into a fridge going into the uh, this huge stone building. So... In fact, the cellist who was next to me was wearing gloves. And she was the continuo player. And she, she cut the ends off the fingers just so that she could still operate her cello. Um, and she said, I've never played such a cold concert. Anyway, we played this and the choir was magnificent. Um, and this wonderful music swelled into the church. And we went into the pub for the interval. And my mum said, well, you know, that's the first concert of yours in 40 years that your dad's enjoyed. Oh. So um, that came as a bit of a shock. Came from a shock for me too. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but he was very loyal and he came to many, many, many of the jazz concerts and he always supported me. Was not expected that ending. Understood. <laughs> okay, so before we go, sir, yes. we normally give a shout out or show respects to the artists who came before us. I'm going to tell you an instrument and two artists. Choose one and tell us why. And for you, I'm really curious about a lot of this. <laughs> any instrument and any two artists? I'm, yeah, it's just going to be mainly jazz instruments for the most jazz instruments, you know. <laughs> right. A trumpet. Chef yeah. Baker or Lee Morgan? Lee Morgan. Okay, why so quick and why? <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't know this, but my next book is an analysis of the Jerry Mulligan quartets in the 1950s. I've listened to every note and done transcriptions, and it's, it's a big book in uh, another series for a different publisher. But it meant that I've listened to a lot of Chet. I think Chet was an intuitive genius, and I think some of the early recordings, certainly the ones with Bird, even before he played with Jerry, and the 1952-3 recordings with Jerry are phenomenal. But 
the difference is that Lee Morgan has soul in every note that he ever played. I've listened extensively to that because wearing my other hat as a publisher, I published Tom Perchard's wonderful biography of Lee Morgan. And it made me go back and listen to so many of the, the records. And people who just know him from one or two of the, the albums um, don't know the full range of the music that he was capable of. I love the period he was with the Messengers. I love the work that he... Benny Golson once said to me that it was a little bit like Diz and Bird. He said that we didn't realise it at the time, but we were one musical mind. We thought together, we phrased together, we never talked about it, it just happened. With the best will in the world, I don't think Chet, even though he played beautifully with Jerry and with one or two other people, ever had that complete empathy that Lee did. And then you listen to him playing a ballad, you listen to even some of the kind of almost formulaic albums like The Rump Roller, and yet in every single one of those there's a track that can catch your attention, melt your heart. So for me, it's Lee Morgan. And when does this book come out? The Jerry Mulligan book will be yeah. next year. Next year. But, um, but the, the one we're talking year. about is out now. Okay. No, but I have an excuse to bring you on next year. Lice. <laughs> <laughs> on saxophone, Cannonball, or John Coltrane? That's a really, really tough one, but I think I'd say John Coltrane. And I'd say it for one reason. It's Trinkle Tinkle with Monk at the five spot. That record blew me away, the live version. I mean, the, the studio version's good, but the live version is just unbelievable. And I did a series for Radio 3 on Coltrane, and I used Ascension as a kind of central point to look forward and back at his work. And it, again, meant that I listened very thoroughly to everything. And I talked to as many of the Coltrane colleagues as I possibly could. But I think what I learned from that was this was a very complete musician in so many ways. And I'm as fascinated by the late material with Rashid and Alice Coltrane, um, Interstellar Space, those things, as I am by the absolutely beautiful work that he did for Prestige before he joined Miles. So Velvet's for Her Furs, still one of those tunes that the hairs go up on the back of my neck. It's the best ballad playing, some of the best ballad playing by any tenor player I've ever heard. And yet some of the explorations that you hear in those very late groups with Rashid are just incredible. And I very... I had a conversation with Gary Giddens, he says name dropping again, but I had a conversation with Gary about this once. And he said, the thing is that people tend to like Coltrane up to a certain point, and then they don't. And I've never reached that certain point. Okay, well, okay, good answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> On bass, Ray Brown or Ron Carter? That's a really difficult one because I'm still a good um, email friend of Ron's and I knew Ray very, very well. Okay. Am fine. I allowed to do a 50-50? Am we'll I skip allowed to that say one. they come equal nice. first? I'll try to be difficult. Okay, but this one, I'm piano. Count Baseman or Duke Ellington? Ellington. And again, 
The reason is, I think Ellington's a very, very complete musician in so many ways. Basie's talent, and it's a great one, was for editing, for reduction, for taking things down, minimalizing. And he was a phenomenal band leader. I mean, the discipline in the Basie band is incredible, even though it doesn't seem to be, but it was. But Ellington's musical scope, his landscape, the fact that this man could do, funnily enough, I'm, I'm talking to my um, old BBC colleague, Brian Priestley, the um, uh, Mingus expert, but we're, we're talking uh, about Ellington on Monday. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about in this discussion um, is Single Petal of a Rose from the Queen Suite, which has had a bit of popularity lately, but it's Jimmy Woody and Duke. And I like the fact that it, you know, we think of Duke and Blanton or Duke and Ray Brown. He always had an affinity with his bassists. And that one with Jimmy, just the two of them playing that the first time with Jimmy bowing the first couple of choruses and then coming pizzicato and then Duke playing. It's consummate playing by both of them. And yet it's almost unknown. It's one of those gems. And there are gems like that with Duke's own playing from every single bit of his career, right back to the 20s, right through to the last concerts. Okay. Are we it, going through the whole orchestra here, Leander? Yeah. I love that album too. And my bad for not bringing that up. I just didn't want to give you a whole book away. <laughs> <laughs> On drums, Max Roach or Art Blakey? Blakey. And I've heard both of them live. I love Max's playing. And I've seldom seen a more correct drummer in the sense his posture Everything about him is textbook. It's absolutely, was absolutely phenomenal. But not just because I sat at the next table to him at Lush Life, but I heard The Messengers a number of times, particularly in the Terence Blanchard, Jean Toussaint, um, uh, Harrison period, you know, that, that band, Margaret Miller. And uh, it, it, that band was the version that was kind of touring Europe at the time that I was able to start going to concerts on my own. And I loved hearing that band. But what I, everybody who's talked to me about it, all the records I've heard, the great thing about Blakey is his ability to interact with everybody. To Dexter Gordon um, wrote me, a, I was going to publish his autobiography. It never happened because he died before he'd finished it. But we were exchanging letters. And one of them was about his first time playing with, the Art, with Art Blakey and the Billy Eckstein band. And he said, I finished my solo. And I was going back to my seat and he said, the press roll from the drums hauled me back to the microphone and I had to do another five choruses. Blakey had that ability to dictate to a band what was going to happen, even if it wasn't his band. But it was always swinging. It was always thoughtful. And you think about the percussion records where he had those ones where he has all the different drummers. He's really into the whole idea of percussion in a way that even Max wasn't. Okay, now, uh, okay. Percussionist myself, so okay. Or Blakey or Buddy Rich? That's a very difficult one. Um, in that particular pairing, funnily enough, I choose Buddy. And the reason is not just because it was the first American big band I ever saw live. Um, my first week at Oxford University, 
I discovered nobody was re reviewing concerts for the university magazine. So I took the tickets and that week I heard Oscar Peterson, I heard Buddy Rich, and I heard Segovia playing classical guitar. Um, and I thought, being a reviewer is not bad. You get to hear all the stuff and you don't have to write 400 words at the end of it and it's all done. Um, Buddy was phenomenal then and I heard the band at numerous periods over the years. The small group was on Estico, the big band in various different iterations. And what I liked about Buddy was he never lost that phenomenal control of the kit. That was peerless. I mean, there are very few drummers who had that absolute technical command. And yet, at the same time, the band could outswing most other bands, most other big bands I've ever heard. And then his set pieces, like the West Side Story Suite, were just an essay in drumming with a band kind of there as well. It, it was like a concerto for drums. Um, and I remember thinking, how can the band read this music as the spotlight came down and it was just Buddy and you could see in little um, luminescent tips on his sticks and it, it was very dramatic. But of course they played it so many times, they all knew the chart, back was upside down and inside out. But it was a phenomenal display. And I think as a live performer, partly because he was grouchy, Blakey wasn't on stage, but Blakey was quite affable on stage unless somebody messed up on the, in, in the band. But, but Buddy was, you could see he was grouchy, you could see there were issues, but when he was actually playing, the focus, the concentration and the skill was second to none. Okay. My favorite drummer, by the way. But yes, okay. <laughs> so, sir, can you tell us your website, your social media? I, uh, I have the links on the website of where you buy your book and everything, but just tell everybody. <laughs> so, I'm alanshipton.co.uk. Um, that's, that's my own website, which has details of the various bands and the books that I've published and all that kind of thing. And then um, I'm at... I think I'm at Alan Shipton on Twitter. And that's where you can find me. Okay, well... If not, just try at A Shipton, but I think it's at Alan Shipton. All right. <laughs> I, I never actually address anything to myself because I seem automatically to be there. I understand that. Well, sir, been an honour, super formative. Love these type of interviews. <laughs> Whenever you can give me insight that not only can I not find, and it's like a personal experience, I genuinely truly enjoy it so thank you for coming on everyone be sure to check out this book when i say it's literally a work of art it has stories that you're not going to get elsewhere <laughs> well thank you leander it's been a great conversation it's lovely to talk to you likewise and everyone this is leander from improv exchange thank you enjoy the rest of your day that's that on jazz thank you for joining us on this episode of improv exchange Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>